So Men on the Street Comedy, it's about watching the relationship between the two people play out in real time. Scripted comedy is about hiding the reaction of the relationship between the two people. I'm Michael Scott from The Office. You have the camera on me. I say something crazy that would normally get me punched in the face. I wait till the absolute last second to cut to Jim or whoever's listening to him to give that look to the camera, to let the audience know that Jim feels exactly how they feel. Like, oh, can you believe this guy? That's scripted comedy. It's about hiding that relationship because you're playing with the rhythm of that to really punch whatever joke you're trying to do in terms of the story. Sometimes you run into a situation where you could really have to help things aesthetically, but it's rare. Scripted comedy, on the other hand, it is about the structure and how when you hide things, who's got the power and whatever the scene is playing out, that sort of thing. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 57 of the So This Moai podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Robert James Ash, who has spent almost a decade as head of post-production on The Conan Show, which included garnering four Emmy nominations, and has also previously worked on The Pete Holmes Show, the Tonight Show with Conan Bryan and the 2004's in MTV Movie Awards. In this episode, Robert shares how he went from being an army brat and Disney kid to working in theater before eventually moving to Hollywood and finding himself in the world of post-production, as well as what it's like to have spent nearly a decade working in late night on The Conan Show, such as delivering a 42-minute show in 19 minutes, and incorporating the silhouette of his daughter's head into the original Conan logo. We also talk about what it's like being parents to three amazing children who are also physically handicapped and the realities of balancing life as a parent with working in Hollywood. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I was born in Washington, D.C. I was an army brat. Then we moved to Syracuse for a couple years, but the vast majority of the time growing up was Orlando, Florida. Because uh, my father worked for Disney for 35 years. He built the point-of-sale computer system for Epcot Center and just an incredible amount of stuff after that. So yeah, I grew up in Orlando, Florida. I was a Disney child through and through. Like That was pretty much my playground growing up because my dad worked there. We got free tickets all the time. You so know, you were probably a- one of those kids who was sick of Disneyland. Oh, yeah. I was that child. I was like, oh, yeah, Haunted Mansion. <laughs> Spoiled to the rotten core. I look back now, and I'm up in California right now, right near Disneyland. And any chance I can take to take my children to Disneyland, I don't even hesitate. It's a very important place in my life. I saw this beautiful piece that you wrote about bringing your kids to Disneyland, how it's their favorite thing. And how I think Elsa and Anne, they made the day for you, even though it started not being so great. But then at the very end, they did something really magical for your kids. It really is. And it's a funny thing. My two daughters at the time, I have three children now, but I only had two at the time. We had this terrible day at Disneyland. It was hot. The kids were just in a mood and we're just getting on each other's nerves. And there's this area in California Adventure that has all these television screens. 
They're all over the place. And it's my oldest daughter's favorite place. She's nonverbal, but she loves screen. She loves everything that's going on screen. So it's also my favorite place because it's the most air-conditioned place in all of Disneyland. We would hang out there and just watch the videos a lot. And one time we were there and we were tired. It was the end of the day. And my wife and other daughter came in. We're just hanging out, trying to cool down. And slowly but surely, we're noticing people leaving the building because we figure out they're closing. But as they're leaving, a bunch of employees are coming in. We figured uh, it must be like employee training that's about to happen or anything like that. And all of a sudden, one of the employees comes up to us and goes, look, we've been noticing you guys around the park. Look like you had kind of a tough day. We'd like to cheer you up. And they brought their character versions of Anna and Elsa in to play with my daughters. One of the animation teachers made a drawing for my daughters. It was just this, they call it magic moments that Disney provides. And um, it was one of the most special days as a family that we've ever had. <laughs> when you have days like that, you can't help be a lifetime fan. Going back to your childhood, you had all that exposure to Disneyland. You were also doing musical theater as well? Yeah. So I grew up going to Catholic school. We moved and it was my first chance to go to a public school, but the public school itself uh, happened to be a, a magnet school for the performing arts. And I showed up there and I ran into an old friend that I knew from like the third grade whose name was Eric Garbus. And he just dragged me into the theater. He was like, this is what you're going to do now. I was like, oh, and just immediately I got in with these people and we started doing these shows. And I went to high school with this just incredible array of talent from like members of the Mickey Mouse Club to members of Luis Fonzi, who did a Despacito. I wasn't in class with them, but um, Wayne Brady also went to our high school. Just great, great talent musically and acting wise. That's all we did was we would do these shows, we would do these musicals, and it was how we just had fun. And it, it's so strange to think about now that that's how I enjoyed my life because I'm so not that guy now. <laughs> but that got me my start in the entertainment world. You know, I was doing that. I was volunteering at a local improv theater in Orlando, Florida called a SAC Theater, where I would volunteer to be an usher. And they would put on improv shows and bohemian night shows. And that just got into, for me, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It was time to go to college, and I got offered a scholarship to, I guess you would call it a trade school. It wasn't necessarily a college. It was a AMDA, A-M-D-A. The American Musical and Dramatic Academy. I wanted to go because I've always been a big proponent of just kind of knowing what I want but then wanting to know everything about it. So I decided that this was the school I was going to go to because first off, it's going to bring me to New York City. That's where all the theater is happening. And secondly, it's just what I want to do. I don't want to take calculus. I just wanted to do shows. That's all it came down to. And then I would sneak away. I would cut classes to go to Broadway auditions. And the worst thing that happened to me during this point was I would get callbacks, which to a young guy who doesn't want to be in school anymore, that's enough false hope to really be like, oh, you don't need school, kid. They already want you. The reality of it is, is I'm a very large human. I'm six foot seven, which makes me unusual in a theater world. So people call me back just to give me a second look. I can look at that now. I've been through a lot of it. But I started working in shows. I convinced my parents to let me drop out after a year of AMDA. And I just started working. And I worked for like four years straight. And in four years, I maybe had like two weeks off. And I was doing shows everywhere, just regional theater, national tours. It was really easy to get work. I was never the star. I was never like a headliner or anything like that. But I was always unique enough that they would stick me in the back somewhere. Usually is, you know, oh, we need someone who looks like they can beat someone up. <laughs> and by the fourth year, I got really miserable. 
I was just tired of traveling. Like I said, my dad was working for Disney and they offered him to move out to California permanently. And my mom was going to go. And the weekend she needed to move, she threw her back out. So I was on the phone with her and I was miserable on the tour. I said, tell you what, I want to quit my tour. I'll come there. I'll, I'll help you move out, but I want to come with you. And they're like, fine. So I made the trek out to California. Hooked up with a bunch of friends who were trying to be out here, be performers as well. Tried the acting thing and discovered that as easy as it was for me to get work in theater, it was the exact opposite when it came to film and TV. No one wanted me. Because a big difference between film and theater is that in theater, I can play a Viking or I can play an old man. It's theater. We can make you look a certain way. We can make, dress you up a certain way to help convince the audience that you have a certain skill set or whatever. When you try out for, see, what was one of my biggest first auditions was Married with Children. Try out to be a basketball player for Married with Children. They actually get NBA players to come to the audition. <laughs> and then you, you go, oh, you don't want someone who pretends. You actually want someone who actually can do the job. So that's when I slowly started learning that it was going to be a lot harder than it was. But one of the first things you got to do when you come out to act is you got to get an agent. So my friends and I, I got together and we started just handwriting agents and stuff like that. And we got some responses and all the agents said the same thing. Where's your demo reel? They're like, oh, well, what's a demo reel? Uh, well, demo reel is a bunch of clips of you acting that we can send to casting directors, that sort of thing, so they can see what you look like on camera, see if you can act, so on and so forth. None of us have any of that. We all worked in Florida where everyone knew each other, so you never needed anything like that. So we decided, um, well, what if we just filmed a couple one-minute scenes, just get ourselves on tape? Well, this was 1998, 99, before cameras started getting remarkably cheap. Uh, we went to a couple of companies. I think we pitched them doing like five one-minute scenes, and they wanted to charge $50,000 wow. to do the whole thing. Yeah, because back then, that's how much you could charge for that kind of work. So we're like, ah, you, you know, we're all 20 years old, 21 years old. And we're like, oh, we could do this. So we all got together, and we decided, okay, let's rent a camera, rent a light, rent a boom mic. And so it just came down to, okay, who's going to hold the camera? I have the camera. Who's going to hold the mic? You hold the mic. Oh, we'll switch off. And then at the end, it was like, well, who's going to put this all together? Yeah, I'll put it together. How hard could it be? So I downloaded Adobe Premiere and put the stuff together. It was real simple stuff, like a master shot, a close-up. But I put it together. So we all got our little one-minute scenes. And then it got passed around because they would have their scenes and they would show it to their friends. And one of the first questions that they would ask, well, who did that for you? Oh, my friend Rob. Oh, okay. And then what happens is if you stick around Los Angeles long enough around people who are active, they start working. So their friends now become higher up. So slowly but surely, I would start getting calls from leads from television shows. I'm submitting myself for the NAACP awards. Can you put together a reel for me? Oh, yeah, sure. And then those calls turn into producers saying, hey, can you put together this little presentation for me? That sort of thing. And then as the years went on, people calling me for acting People calling me for editing just started. And then by the time I was about probably 26, 27, I got fired from a visual effects place for not knowing my software. It was an editing job. And they asked me going in, they're like, oh, we have this thing called Final Cut Pro. Do you know it? I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Went in there and I tanked. It was terrible. And they rightfully let me go, like just without a doubt. When they let me go, I remember I 
drove away from the place and I pulled by this school I used to see in Burbank called Video Symphony. Video Symphony taught every form of post-production, Avid, Premiere Pro, Final Cut Pro. And I pulled over and I went in there and asked for a tour. And I decided that day that I was going to be an editor because I walked away mad from the job for firing me. I analyzed that. And I was like, oh, that actually hurts my feelings that they thought I wasn't good at it. Maybe I really like this. And so I decided then that it was like a year program. I decided I was going to put everything into it to just make the most of it. So I was living with my parents at the time. So they helped out immensely. I worked like in the warehouse at Best Buy, like going to school during the day and like using the lab as much as I possibly could. And I did the year program in like six months just because I was there so much. And then I got out of there and hit the ground running. And all of a sudden I started working all these visual effects gigs. Very small jobs, but on big productions. Peter Pan, The Hulk, the Ang Lee version of The Hulk. And I mean, just the the most minor of jobs, but enough to get a credit in it, which helped for the next, because once you have the big recognizable credit, you can get a bigger job on a smaller thing. So that started lifting. And I was getting all this work in visual effects, and then it just stopped. It just died. And I couldn't figure out why. There was no real reason. And I just hit the slump. But strangely enough, right when I hit the slump, I got a call from the school, and they said, you've been doing really well out there. I was like, oh, thank you. Well, do you think you could teach how you did well? Like, could you teach the students how that works out. I was like, yeah, I think so. I think I could do it. So I spent the next year at that point teaching when I could the students about what it's like out there in the real world working on projects. And they also asked me to help the students find jobs which I tried to do as much as I could. And then probably about a year into that, my wife, who at the time was working for David Kissinger and Alex Rockwell. Now, David Kissinger is the president of Conan O'Brien's production company, Conoco LLC, on ad in the paper that said Conan O'Brien's moving out to Los Angeles to do The Tonight Show. I just asked him, I was like, hey, could you put my name in for it? And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll try, sure. So I'm teaching a class one day, and I think it was like a Monday. And they call me and they're like, hey, is there any way you could be here in an hour for an interview? So I asked my buddy to cover the class and I went down there and they're like, oh, hey, David, give us your name. We have a bunch of editors moving out from New York, but we're looking to get started on stuff. So we need you for about two weeks. Would you be up for that? I was like, yeah, sure, man. Figure, hey, it's easy. It's the Tonight Show. It's an easy credit. I get to work for them for two weeks. I get to walk out saying I work for the Tonight Show. Awesome. I didn't even give them like a rate. I didn't even know how much I was going to get because it was two weeks. Who cares? So I worked the two weeks and I work on, I remember I was there mostly to do, it was the gift shop remote for the Tonight Show, which is still one of my favorites. And at the end of the two weeks, the end of that shift on Friday, said, hey, on Monday, could you come in and work on this other piece? I think Conan was like driving a car. It was like a music video type thing. Yeah, sure. Worked on that a week. Next, they're like, hey, can you come in Monday and work on this? Yeah, sure. Three, four, five, six weeks go in. We, we had months of prep before the first Tonight Show. Three months later, I'm still there. And it's the night before the first show. And I finally asked for a meeting with one of the producers, uh, Tracy King, and who had, hadn't had a lengthy conversation with yet. I had a real quick one going in. She was like, hey, what's up? You okay? I was like, do I work here? <laughs> and she was like, yes. Oh, my God. Like, and so 12 years later, I kind of worked my way uh, up the food chain, so to speak. And I went through the Tonight Show with Conan and I went through the transition when he did a, a live comedy across the U.S. Worked with Robert Smigel, who's a Triumph the Insult comic dog. Worked with him on videos on that, which brought me to uh, the birth of my first child shortly before Conan started. And once she was born, I really realized I needed to make as much money as humanly possible. <laughs> 
So I got together with our lead editor at the time and our head of graphics, Eric Mil- Eric McGilloway, and we decided to try to take more responsibility on the show. And the quickest way we could think of doing that was to design like the opening titles, the logos, the marketing materials, all that stuff, which would normally go to like an outside company. We did like a lottery approach. So each one of us came up with three pitches. So we came in, we presented nine pitches and they just, they picked mine. And so that kind of set the standard of how the next 12 years would go, where we were given this added responsibility because we offered it, honestly. And that was a big lesson for us that like, sometimes you want to be recognized for your creativity. It's like, you got to just go for it and just create. Didn't you also design the original Conan logo and you incorporated your daughter into it? How did that happen? The original pitch of the Conan opening titles was based off of a title designer called Saul Bass. Now, Saul did a lot of the 007 Alfred Hitchcock type titles, which uh, made a lot of use of silhouettes. Because I was trying to think at the time, especially, Conan was so huge on the internet. And I was just trying to think of ideas that were both classic and modern at the same time. And to me, I was like, okay, internet, 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 icons. You see icons all the time, app icons, share icons, play icons, pause, all this stuff. And I was like, symbols, okay. So I thought, okay, wouldn't it be interesting if like it was like an app? That was the first thing I just thought. I was like, and everything had a symbol. Every guest comes on. They have some sort of symbol that represents them. Okay, well, what about our regular guys? Well, Andy's the announcer, so she, he should have a microphone. The band, Jimmy's got his guitar, so it should be good the guitar. Well, what's Conan? Well, he has his hair. So the hair wasn't supposed to be part of the logo. The logo was just supposed to be the word Conan, just Gotham font. It wasn't supposed to be fancy at all. But they saw the open and they liked it a lot. But little did they know, I hid uh, little Easter eggs for myself in the opening design. So if you look above the word Conan in the black silhouette, you'll see kind of an angled shot of what is an outline of my daughter looking up to the sky, which was way more incredibly obvious when it was just part of the opening titles. But uh, once I learned they wanted it to be part of the logo, I did a real, I, I made it way less descript. But it was fun. It was fun to hide that in there. And I hung that over Dan Dome especially. I told him up top, I was like, Elliot's in this open, by the way, and he could never figure out where it was, which is good because I was definitely afraid that someone was going to bust me on it. When you were first working with Conan, what was it like to have to deliver a 42-minute show in 90 minutes? It must have been, Uh, at the start, quite terrifying. It was, and it's funny, too, because at the end, the show was the most relaxing part. I guess that's just how it goes. But yeah, I mean, when I first started on The Tonight Show, we had some hairy nights because we would film at 4.30, I'm pretty sure. So you're done at 5.30 filming, and you're on the air at 8, so you have two and a half hours. But in NBC, because at the time their equipment was older, I don't even know how it's like now. But at the time their equipment was older, so you actually had to get from the show by 7. Because they had to recomposite the show. Now, what I mean by that is they had to re-record the show. And while they were recording, they would lay in all the NBC logos and the commercial breaks and all that kind of stuff. So they had to have a certain time. They wouldn't have to have the whole show necessarily by seven, but at least the first act. Because the first act was always like 20 minutes. And it was a way to buy us some time. But there's one night in particular where we were sprinting down the hall to get them a tape in time. Because every night we would broadcast, we would actually have it playing digitally from our studio in case the feed ever went bad, they could switch over to us. And we literally turned it in probably about nine seconds before we hit it. So we had a couple nights like that. There was one, it was such a short bit too, but President Obama, he was doing an interview with somebody and there was a fly flying around 
in the interview. And it was just a quick little gag of like a large tongue coming out of his mouth, like eating it like a frog. And something went terribly wrong. And I don't remember why, but they wanted to fix the shot. And we turned it in literally a half a second before he called for it on stage. I remember that particular night because myself and the head writer at the time, after we turned in, we both like just fell to the ground and just kind of <laughs> laid and just like stared up to the ceiling and just waited for a laugh to come. But it's one of those things you start to really get a talent for breaking down how long an hour can be and how you can cut minutes out of what you're doing all the time. Because as tight as that schedule sounds, on an atypical night, it wasn't that hard because we knew what we were doing. We knew every little step we could take to get things to where it needed to go as quickly as possible. When the nights were challenging, well, yeah, it didn't feel great. <laughs> Is it possible to put into words what you were looking for that allowed you to speed through and figure out what to put into the show and what to cut? Uh, no, because the priority would be different uh, according to the show. Because uh, the thing about television is it has to be a certain amount of time. You can't call the network and be like, hey, our show's really good tonight. Can we have five extra minutes? Then they go, no, we have this many commercials we need to play. It needs to be 42 minutes or you know whatever it was at the time. I think it was 42, 30 so comedy was always the thing you try to save. So normally the time would come out of the interview, if it could. On particular nights where the interview went particularly well, comedy would pay the price that night. I mean, these days, especially towards the end, I mean, everything ends up online anyway. I mean, everything's important. You just need to get your show version done and then you do your exports for YouTube and all that kind of, especially in the interviews now, because towards the end, Conan would do 30 minutes straight with a guest. We wouldn't even like stop the interview to... Be like, we're going to cut to commercials. See you in a second. Like, we never did that anymore to keep the flow of the conversation going. It's sometimes things you'd cover mistakes. Sometimes people said stuff they shouldn't. It, it would really just kind of depend. Do you feel like your work has evolved over time? Because as you said earlier, when you first started, it was 42 minutes. Now you can put everything online. So you don't have to feel as like no one will ever see this really good bit because of a lack of time. Yeah, no, it was never about that. What made it more challenging would be the more versions of something that you have, the easier it is to mess it up. Because if in the Tonight Show days, you turn in your show and that's it. That's all you're doing. Well, towards the end, we were got to do the show. Now you got to do the web highlights. Now you got to do the extras. Now you got to do the serious monologue export for that day. Now the people who arrange the sponsored segments need copy of this segment, that sort of thing. So that's where it could get crazy because your laundry list of things to do would change. Running around like a chicken with its head cut off, but especially be challenging on the times when we would be doing not just the late night show, but also Cohen's travel show. There might be a pilot happening at the same time. There might be an award show um, being worked on at the same time. That, that's where things would get very challenging. But the hope is that you have people around you that A, support you, which I did all the time. Wonderful editors, had a wonderful post coordinator, had a wonderful associate director at post. And we would always work towards the common goal of getting everything done and try to get everything done in a way that people didn't have to split their attention too much. So what I mean by that is like, if today I need you to work on a travel show, I'm trying to create an environment where you just work on the travel show and not have to do four other things. But that meant I'm doing all the late night show, that sort of thing. So everyone had their part to play, but everyone always did such a great job. For those travel segments, what was the most time-consuming parts of it? Ingest, always ingest. 
you don't necessarily know what's important. And just by pure length, where a late night show, yeah, you have your multiple cameras, but it's being done through a control room. It gets routed. It gets ingested just like a TiVo or DVR. It's very simple. But when they hand three cameras of 18 hours a piece and you're going to be on the air in eight days, you go, oh. <laughs> so ingest in that first assembly because it's that first run through of going through everything, looking at what you've got figuring out where the issues are, figuring out, of course, where the funny is, which is the most important part, of course. But yeah, once you got that first cut done, almost everything after that is way simpler because you try to bring it to a place of, here's everything that I think is funny. Now let's sit with it, fine tune it, make it shorter because longer is never the answer. Then it just becomes the question of, do you need this? Do you need this? Do you need this? That sort of thing. And the luxury of having a plethora of jokes to pick from, then you start going, well, can this segment hold the audience for 10 minutes or can it hold them for five minutes? Because if it can hold them for five minutes, I may have a bunch of A-level jokes, but if it's not going to hold, then some of them got to go. So let's kill some darlings here. <laughs> and how challenging was it to do that high tea segment? where they were filming for four days and you had a one-week editorial schedule. That one in Greenland were the hardest ones to turn around because they both had the same challenge, which was they were both based on news stories that were happening at the time. So you had to do them quickly before the world forgot the news story. Because the worst thing would be for the show to air to be like, oh, President Trump said he was going to buy Greenland three months ago. We just made a show. No, no it's got to be in a week. But the plus in both those approaches were we could cut to the heart of things quicker. And what I mean by that is that if I gave you an hour to do something, everyone could turn out a great thing in an hour. Would it have been better if you had three hours? Might have been. But what you turned out was great in an hour. And sometimes, yeah, it might have been better at three. Definitely would not have been better at seven. See what I mean? It's like sometimes fiddling with something for too long does it no favors either. So that became like the ultimate version of speed chess on the show. What's funny? What's funny? What's funny? And then also trying to fill in what we could authoritatively in terms of history, facts about the nation, what message we're trying to have for each piece, that sort of thing. You mentioned the word speed chess. What does that mean? Did you see... Queen's Gambit? No, no that, that's, a, that's a good thing to bring up. But I didn't see Queen's Gambit, so I can actually comment on it. But did you see uh, Pixar's Soul? There's a version that they talk about in creativity when you're in the zone on something and you just kind of get lost in the thing. That's kind of what speed chess is. You don't necessarily know why you're making the moves you're making. You just make them without thinking too hard about what you're doing. I'm a prime, prime believer in not judging any piece until it's completed on a timeline. Not finished, completed, till I have a whole beginning, middle, and an end on a timeline to look at, where I understand how all the cameras are relating to each other, where I understand what all the jokes are, where all the, how the script comes into play, how the actors come into play. So I will do everything in my power to get anything on a timeline as quickly as possible. A lot of editors tend to worry about the planning of what that is and how things should be laid out. And they analyze each take and they're looking at things relating to each other without it being in a timeline, without it seeing how it relates to one another. It's almost like a fear of being wrong. I don't care if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, that's fine. We'll do it on the next pass. But I need to have something to look at so we know what we're dealing with. And that's what speed chess is. You can't even really put it into words. After 12 years of cutting a late night, one of the most common things you would be asked to edit is a mock commercial. I would dare say that towards the end, I could do those without ever having to read a script again because I know the rhythms. And there's comfort in them. They're written specifically to the rhythm. 
because it allows the audience to be in on the presentation. You want them to come on this journey with you. You don't want them to be worried about where they're going. So you give them the comfort of having the structure. What do you mean by rhythm? A mock commercial. Tired of having blue cups to drink for all your water? Try red cups. That sort of thing. So mock commercial starts. You put a creepy drone. Kick it in. Boom. Rob Ash doesn't want you to have a red cup. He thinks you should be drinking from the blue cup. Well, let's show him. Music changes. By bringing him red cups for $2.50, go down to the, you know, that sort of thing. There's a rhythm to it. So you do the setup, you flip it with music, you show the product, you make your three to four jokes, reflecting the product or whatever message that you're trying to get for the cross. You show the product again, you add the tag. Red cup, get yours now. Only nine ninety nine ninety nine ninety nine. There's a rhythm to it. And what is it you mentioned before, editing comedy? It must be very different from editing something that isn't comedy. There's a couple different ways to look at it. So there's man-on-the-street comedy, which is different than scripted comedy. Man-on-the-street comedy, if you watch a lot of it, a lot of shots tend to be wide on man-on-the-street comedy. A lot of shots tend to have jump cuts man-on-the-street comedy because you're not bound to a narrative structure, not bound to be shot like a film. And also, you want to stay wide as much as possible because it's about the relationship between who is talking and who is listening. And you want that to play as live as possible. You don't want it to seem edited because if it seems edited, it will seem fake. So you're doing as much as you can to keep it energetic, even if it's a bit like ridiculous. You still want the presentation to look real because it will take the audience out. They'll be like, ah, you're trying to trick me with your editing. And it really comes off that way. So Man on the Street Comedy, it's about watching the relationship between the two people play out in real time. Scripted comedy is about hiding the reaction of the relationship between the two people. I'm Michael Scott from The Office. You have the camera on me. I say something crazy that would normally get me punched in the face. I wait till the absolute last second to cut to Jim or whoever's listening to him to give that look to the camera, to let the audience know that Jim feels exactly how they feel. Like, oh, can you believe this guy? That's scripted comedy. It's about hiding that relationship because you're playing with the rhythm of that to really punch whatever joke you're trying to do in terms of the story. Sometimes you run into a situation where you could really have to help things aesthetically, but it's rare. Scripted comedy, on the other hand, it is about the structure and how when you hide things, who's got the power and whatever the scene is playing out, that sort of thing. And what was it like cutting for The Notebook 2? Oh, <laughs> that one, wow, we just did that like two hours before the show. That, that, one, that one to me was very special because I love Ryan Reynolds and I, I just love that particular piece so much. And the day that we had to cut it. And sometimes tight turnarounds can be hard and sometimes they're not. And that time it wasn't because I knew what it was going to be right away. I had the script before they filmed it. So I was already picking music, already made the graphics, already made the titles. And I kind of imagined what they were going to film and what shots I would probably want for each thing. And so when it came in, I just filled it in. I had it turned around less than an hour easily. Like once again, when you're turning around a piece that quickly... Not a whole lot of time to think. Sometimes the most obvious answer is the answer that you want. Do you feel like the process, I mean, it was different for you when you went from 42 minutes to 30 minutes? Uh, me personally, no, because my main duty on the show has always been the comedy on the top, the monologue, the sketches, the ads, 
when I started on the show, I mostly did interviews and stuff like that. So if I was still doing interviews, absolutely, the format would have changed. Probably would have been tougher for me too, because it had more to cut. There's this segment that Conan's show is most known for, which is Clueless Gamer. And I wonder sure. what it's like just having to edit those sort of segments. So what's great about Cutting Gamer is you usually allowed a little more time. Usually they would film those maybe about a week ahead because it was a little more involved. Multiple cameras, a little bit more of a complex presentation in terms of your picture and pictures and stuff like that. It was always a fun balance to figure out how much of a video that you're making about a game versus how much you're really, you're just trying to tell some jokes. (laughs) You know what I mean? And what that balance should be. There's something to be said for when you need in comedic structure set up very often is very important, if not the most important thing. I'm not trying to go with this. Let me give you an example of something. Okay, it's not a gamer, but it'll make my point. There was a remote that Conan did with Jordan Slansky where they did an escape room. It was called The Detective. An escape room, if you don't know, it's like you go into this room and there's actors and it's all role play and they give you a bunch of puzzles in order for you to escape the room. Really good idea for really good comedy. There was one problem with the piece, though. Escape rooms are all written puzzles. Written puzzles on camera are really boring because... If you film it in real time, I'm just doing this. Talk to the man who's got the blah, 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 blah. Not very fun on camera, right? But in order to make the jokes about where they were, about what they were doing, you had to get that information. So it's like, how do we make it interesting? Well, this is where editing can help. So I had the idea. I was like, did we get copies of all the clues? They're like, yeah. And they handed me all the pieces of paper. So I scanned all of them in. So while he would be reading them, I would just do like quick flashes of all like the words and like a very old detective style and stuff like that. Really overwhelm the audience because that was the joke. The joke was, this is a crazy amount of information. So, so he reads all these things and I'm flashing like 80 different pieces of paper. And then at the end of the flash, he just goes, what? And that's a big laugh and stuff. And those are the instances where you can really help. So now Clueless Gamer is the same in that fact that you got to show the game. You got to make it make sense to the audience. So if you're showing a character, you got to tell people who he is in order to make fun of him. Because otherwise you're just going, ha ha, funny picture. There has to be a logic to it. Where do you get your inspiration for how you want to cut certain things to make it more interesting? I think you've said before you like to parody the stuff late night infomercials as well. Crazy Eddie stuff, which is an old style of late night commercials done in New York uh, a number of years ago. There's always like a joy in trying to present things very cheaply because there's a lot of the style of us growing up watching television. A a lot of it and the job for late night sketch editing too has to do with parodies. So sometimes you have to understand different styles and what they're trying to present. I mean, ads were always kind of simple because a lot of them were very crazy eddies. But if you're doing a parody of Mad Max, you had to understand what made Mad Max Mad Max and what does it look like? What does it sound like? A lot of the fun would be figuring these things out and seeing if you can do it like Mad Max, if your piece looked like the Matrix while they're fighting, that sort of thing. Honestly, the most obvious inspiration for some pieces were just the things that they were making fun of. Other than that, when something's really just kind of a sketch, there's really no place to draw from. I always think of things like songs, like when I'm reading the script, like it's kind of, I see where the verse is, I see where the chorus is, I see the parts where you need to punch, and I just kind of feel it like music and just kind of lay it out that way. It's a very hard thing to describe sometimes. 
Do you feel like your style has changed from, say, the time when you were editing for Puppeteers with Sid and Marty all the way to now? Sounds so silly to say, but it's true. It's like, you know, I don't think about it too much anymore. One of the main things you can do as an editor is not unlike a painter, not like any other kind of artist, is that you develop your tool set so well that you don't have to think about it anymore. And so the joy of it as you get older, you find joy in different ways. The different challenges of getting something done. Hey, we're going to Haiti. We have seven days. How do we do it? Hi, there's a global pandemic and we want to be on the air in seven days. How do we do it? And then, of course having a crew and trying to relate to them, trying to help them be their best, trying to let them help you be your best. That's a big lesson as you grow. And that was one that took me a while to learn, honestly. Yeah. And speaking of the global pandemic, when was the first time you heard about it and realized that it would impact what you were doing? I was trying to think about it and I don't remember when I first heard about it, but I was one of those who, when I did hear about it, because I, I remember it was like that prior November, I was like really sick for like two weeks. And so when I heard about the thing, I was like, oh, I already had it. And that's what that was. And I do remember we started doing bits about it on our show. And then each day it's getting worse and worse. <laughs> and then my wife and I, and this probably last week of February, first week of March around there, it was on my wife's birthday and we went to Disneyland and it was not crowded at all. We're doing a show and occasionally you would have hiatus from the show. You have like two weeks off, three weeks off, something like that. We're about to take a two week hiatus. And I remember I gave everyone the day off in the trailer, except myself and our engineer. And we're kind of closing up shop. And I looked at the engineer and just kind of talking about it. And we're like, I don't think we're coming back. It was just like a feeling. We weren't sure. And then a week goes by, we get the first email. Hey, we're going to take an extra week. Okay, well. Third week goes by and we're still sitting at home just trying to figure it out. I want to say it was probably the fourth week where we got the email where they're like, we want to be back in the air. No one can be by each other. How do we do this? And that became this mad sprint of trying to figure out what could we do? How could we do it? What the strategy was? And that took the most brain power of everything to figure out because you're constrained by a lot of things. Pandemic, no one can be by each other. Conan, who's not technically minded at all is filming himself so what does he know how to do what is he comfortable with that was one of the first things i established and he knew zoom like they just started using zoom i think like two or three months before that and he knew that that was like you know zoom all right well your interviews are not going to be done on zoom <laughs> so let's start there and then sending messages to his son to make sure he knew how to film himself during a monologue, you know, stuff like that. Real fun stuff. But then once we got our show in the air, then it was about refining what we're doing, making it a little better. As time went on, things got a little looser. We figured out a little bit better tech. They moved the show to Largo because no one wanted to do it from his house anymore. Then it got a little better. Then we got our crowds back. Then we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's anything in particular that's happened that was really memorable for you behind the scenes working on shows like Conan. A lot of the happiest memories for me were the times where I helped the most. 
I didn't necessarily know if I was going to, or if I could prove people wrong on things. It's my favorite. There was one piece in particular. Bob Odenkirk came in. He was going to be a guest that night, and they were going to have him do a mock commercial. Real simple studio presentation. It was like Giebel's Peas, and it's like a three-minute presentation. He talks to an actress. It's one of those like, hi, I'm Bob Odenkirk. When I like to eat, I like to eat Giebel's Peas. You know, that sort of thing. The plan was they were going to film him being terrible, also as a behind the scenes on the thing so it was like bob was going to come out hey i did this really cool commercial and you show the commercial and then the plan was after to be like well i heard you were kind of a jerk and to play a clip well they went on for probably about 30 minutes i want to say to just doing weird outtakes and stuff and there became such a panic i think they got done at 3 45 we're taping at 4 30 and everyone was like well i guess that part will be for the web like that'll be for digital and i was like no <laughs> I, I grabbed it. I was like, it's going to be on air. And, and I, I just grabbed it. And no one like believed me. And I just like, just blazed through the thing. And no one believed that I got it done. And then I called in the segment producer who I adored, Dan Ferguson. And he saw it. He was like, holy shit. And then he called Bob in and, and Bob took a look and, and, you know, Bob's a legend and he liked it. But then he was like, can we, can, can we make some changes? I was like, yeah, dude, let's do it. And that became like a real, like in the zone kind of thing. He was like, well, if we did this, yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. Well, what if we flip this? Yeah, man, totally. Those are the parts that are unforgettable where you really helped. You really made something better. Because a lot of times, especially when you're working with people of this caliber, sometimes you're kind of relegated. Yeah, I kind of helped put it together. And sometimes you could really stake your claim and be like, no, like I helped make this. And then occasionally you would be asked to, well, you wouldn't be asked to, but you'd be welcome to like suggest things. And I got to suggest the cold open to the last Comic-Con, which was like a spoof on Into the Spider-Verse. And I literally suggested it because I saw they weren't doing a cold open. I loved our cold open. And I asked the head writer, he was like, what, do you got an idea? I was like, yeah, man, like, let's do Spider-Verse, like, which is like one of my favorite Marvel things. And I sent it to him. He's like, Conan loves it. How do we do it? Oh, we need an animation company. Okay. Who? I don't know. Call somebody. All right. And then four weeks later, you have this awesome five-minute animation thing. Then, of course, being able to do all of this and pay for a mortgage and my children. <laughs> I've been able to reflect past couple of weeks about a lot of this, but I swear my only regret was not being able to enjoy what I was going through more. I did enjoy it. I absolutely enjoyed it, but I wish I enjoyed it more because I'm grateful that I got to do these things and still raise a family and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you did the show for 12 years, which is a very long time in the industry. When did you first hear that this show was going to end? How do you feel about it? Oh, I want to say it was February, March, but I wasn't surprised at this point. It, it felt like the last couple of years, the train's coming to a halt. I think at this point, we only had like a year left on our original deal anyway. So, I mean, it definitely wasn't like a left field type thing. And then you hear the announcement and you just kind of look at everything and go, okay, well, what do I want to do? I climb this mountain. What's the next mountain to climb? And then just try to figure things out from there. Do you have any advice for people who would love to have a career like you have? I would say don't try to have a career like mine. Mine was an accident. It was not planned. I was supposed to be a performer on the stage. And now I make videos with sketch comedy players. And I think what you really need is to find it. It's hard to phrase this in a way that doesn't sound remarkably cheesy, but it's to find the thing that makes you you and be able to turn it up 110% to let the people that you want to work for know that you're excited to do so. 
What I mean by that, it was I spent years getting booked on talent, but then not succeeding very often. And it was something that confused me until I worked at a visual effects place with a buddy of mine and got me a job there. And I, I remember being miserable because like no one would talk to me. And you know, it was just kind of boring, honestly. Like outside of the actual work, the work was fine, but like when no one talks to you, it's just kind of like, oh. And I remember one day you, you pulled me down in the hallway. He was like, cut it out. I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? And he was like, you look like a jerk. You're like walking around the hallways. You don't talk to anybody. You're looking at the ground. You barely smile. Like, can't you just act like you're happy to be here? Maybe like someone will talk to you. And I figured it out because part of the thing, like I said about me, is like I'm a humongous human being. So if I walk into a room, it affects people in a certain way. And I decided after that, because a lot of young people trying to do this for a living, they get obsessed about being fake. That's a big thing. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be Hollywood. I don't want to kiss butt, man. I want to be me. Well, you got to be nice. <laughs> so people worry about kissing butt, but there's a way of doing it and being real. So I can't walk into a room and pull off salesmanship. I just can't. It doesn't work. I keep be like, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. I'm Rob. I'm going to take care of your movie. I'm going to be your editor. That kind of thing. Because it's fake. I can't pull it off. But what I did figure out that I could pull off is to be the protector of your project. So if I'm in an interview, that's the way I pitch myself. It's I will protect your movie protect your sketch. I will do it the way you want it. If anyone else messes with you, I got that. And it was a way that I could realistically sell what I can do because it would be true. I'm a big proponent of it's your project. You tell me how you want it and I'm going to get that done for you. That's also a big lesson, by the way, for people who want to do editing is while you may end up doing pieces that you also direct or write, when you're hired to edit, you were hired to edit for someone and it's their vision, right or wrong. And you were there to guide them. It's not your piece. How did you figure out that that was your role? I just tried it in, in the interviews. Man, I would tell fake stories all the time. You know, it was almost like it's a psychosis, but I would just try different things in the interviews. And it was like some short film and some producer came in during the interview and kind of butted heads with the director and left. And the director kind of looked at me. I was like, oh, I was like, oh, what's up with that? And he kind of told me what was going on. I was like, I was like dude, I got you, man. Don't worry about him. We'll, we'll do what you want. And I got it like right there. He was like, yeah, you're the one. Okay. And the next one, I just took that attitude. Really, after every interview, I try to reflect on what went right, what went wrong. Because to me, a perspective is much more important than facts when it comes to like interviews or anything. It's like, how did you see me? Because an interview is really based on like, what can I convince you that I can do? So perspective is everything. So down to the shirts I would wear in an interview, where the blue shirt brings out my eyes and makes me friendlier. You know, I mean, it's all little things like that. You learn them over time. You try stuff. People are so deathly afraid of getting everything perfect every time. I, I'm not afraid to go into a job interview and just bomb. I've been around long enough that I think I can bare minimum do a decent job every time I go out there now, but there's something I want to try. I'm not afraid to do so. And before we wrap that, I would love to talk about your family, your daughters, because you're very passionate about them. Your oldest daughter was born in 2010 and she has arthrograde posters. I wonder if you could share a bit about what that means. Thank you for saying it right. First off, that's a rarity. So my oldest daughter was born with arthrogryposis, multiplex congenita, type amyoplasia, where the easiest way to make people understand is she was born with stiff joints. So when she was born, her arms were completely straight. 
but you could barely find her elbows. Her legs were crossed and you could not straighten them. So she's had 12 surgeries at this point on different joints to either loosen them or just anything that we got her to the point where she could walk, which she can now with the use of orthotics. And uh, she's also nonverbal. Once we got her into a place where she was kind of on her path, we started thinking about adding to our family. And we had this idea in our head. I, w- I won't be able to explain it like in, in a wonderful way, but he- here was the basics of it. Was if you have a bunch of kids and one of them is into soccer and plays soccer after school, or they got to go to practice, which means you got to pack all of your kids into the car because they can't be left alone. Got to go to soccer practice. Well, wouldn't it be great if all your kids played soccer? So... We figured we had a really good medical team for my daughter, and we figured out that we could handle more. So we looked into adoption, and we had adopted our second child, also a daughter, from China. And three, four years later after that, we adopted our son from China. And my second daughter and my son also have special needs. They are verbal. What is it like being the parents of three children who would need more assistance than some children might. I mean, a lot of parents would probably look and go, but I can barely look after myself. There are a lot of three children who need so much input from me. I think I hear this sort of thing a lot. People downplay their own resolve on things. Everyone's more capable of doing more than what they think they can do. I mean, it's your family. Like, what else are you going to do? Really, the choice is then you could just be bad at it, which, like, I didn't want to make that choice. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think that the ball game changes for everybody according to their circumstances. I think that as challenging as our oldest can be with being nonverbal, there's also an ease in our purpose, our why for her, is that our priority is for her to be happy and Once we figured that out, a lot of things came easier. I mean, there's certainly other conditions and other things on this planet that would scare us, that we would not be up for. But we found after going through everything we went through the first time around that we were pretty decent at it and we were able to do more. And so we did. The best way I can describe our situation is one of my favorite stories, my oldest After one of her major surgeries, we worked in therapy for a long time to help her to express when she would have pain. One of my big worries was if she had a stomach ache, how was she going to tell us? If she she broke her leg, how was she going to tell us? So on and so forth. So she speaks on the iPad. Uh, She uses a program called Proloquo to Go. And that's how she communicates. She communicates what she wants, where she wants to go, what she wants to eat. So we worked with her to identify body parts, head, stomach, eyes, ears, all that kind of stuff. So she really never used it casually, whereas almost everything else we would work on. I want chocolate milk. I want to go outside. I want to go to the pool. She can express all those, no no problem. So one day we get a call from the school. The school says, Ellie's crying a lot. And she keeps saying on her iPad, head, stomach, head, stomach, head, stomach. We're like, oh, oh, all right. Well, I'll come get her. Yeah, absolutely. So we go and go to the office, bring her out in a wheelchair. She seems all right. Like she's not giving any kind of indication that she's sick or anything like that. And the lady brought her out. She's like, yeah, she keeps head, stomach. She was crying. It's like, oh, yeah. So load her up in the car and she puts on um, her Yo Gabba Gabba, favorite uh, TV show. And then she starts laughing like really hard. I was like, what are you laughing at? And I started looking at her and um, I was like, you just faked being sick, didn't you? And she starts laughing really hard. And I was like, good for you. So she got out of going to school. 
just like any other kid. She just did it in her way. And that's the real difference with all of this. We're hitting all the same marks as everybody else. We're just doing it in our own fun way. My youngest talks her ears off. He's the sweetest kid in the world. Loves Harry Potter, loves swimming, loves making friends, loves playing video games already because it's a pandemic and not much else to do. And in our middle child, Fiona, she loves games. She loves the iPad. She loves a manga. She's a great artist. She makes small pieces of art. She loves small models, like making like little chairs and little tables. She drew the yes. sense once. It was so good. I know, I know. Like she keeps doing these things lately. She shows me, you're like, you did that? Like, it's not a doubt of her talent. It's like, just like, man, <laughs> I could barely draw a stick figure. So yeah, that's the absolute best way I could describe it all. We're playing the same game as everybody else. We're just playing in a different ball field. That's all it is. Do you have any advice for people who are thinking of perhaps adopting a child with physical challenges? Be absolutely sure that the challenge is something you're up for. Be absolutely sure that you are aware that when you adopt, that there may be more challenges that you won't be aware of. And it is no different than when you have a pregnancy. It's no different. What if my child can't walk? What if my child can't see? What if my child can't speak? What if they can't hear? What am I going to do? Ask yourself the same questions because the game's no different. Just because you're handed a file doesn't mean that all the information's in the file. The kid is still young. There was never any difference. When I met Fiona, I just knew she was my daughter. And when I met Colin, I knew he was my son. There was no hesitation. I mean, hell, when we remember the file they gave Fiona, because our first adoption, I mean, we didn't know. It's like, how do you know when they're your kid? And one of the things in her file was they said she tattletales on all the other kids in the orphanage. We just found that hilarious. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's the one. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love that so much. So I love my kids. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for your time and sharing everything. I normally love to end all of my interviews with these questions. So the first one is this. Do you feel like you have found your why? No, and that's okay because if I'm doing things right, it shouldn't be about my why anymore. It it should just be about my children. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Ooh, legacy. Wow. I'm not a huge fan of the show, but you know the show Doctor Who? I'm not an anti-fan. I just haven't watched it that much. But there's a phrase that I think I saw in a meme or something. I just thought it was just so lovely. It was just like, we're all stories in the end. Just make yours a good one. There was a lot of comfort in that phrase to me. And I think if when I'm done, if more people, because you can't please everybody, (laughs) but if more people thought my story was a good one than not, then I'll have done a good job. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Choice. Absolutely knowing what you want, willing to be wrong, but going for it anyway, without hesitation and without fear. Well, I shouldn't say without fear because there's always fear. But I think without hesitation is very important. And where can people go to find out more about what you're doing? I'm on most of the social things at uh, Robert James Ash. That's A-S-H-E. Other than that, hopefully be on a show soon. (laughs) (laughs) Hire me, people, if you're listening. (laughs) Is it hard to transition between late night shows? Well, I will say... Our show was kind of an anomaly because I think in 12 years, we only had, in post, man, we only had a turnover of like three or four people, which is very unusual for any show. 
But the tendency for any of these positions, it's, it's kind of like a pirate ship. Like this is a bad comparison, but it's the only way I can describe it that it's like you'll get the first mate job when the first mate dies. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's this sense of, and people get this wrong sometimes when it comes to Hollywood. It's like they go like, uh, well, do you need an editor? No, we got editors. We have them. We don't need more. We'll call you if one is not available. But most things in Hollywood, really, it's about being the simplest solution to a need for someone and to be there at the right time. I became the lead of Conan after Dan Dome because I was already working there and I was already a lead of another show. So I was the easiest solution in the moment. So in terms of jumping into the other show, there's got to be a need, first off. Probably much easier to jump on a new show, a show that's just uh, starting up. So we'll see what happens there. For people who are looking to break into Hollywood, quote unquote, and they don't have any connections, how do they even start? I was a big believer, and this, this helped me. Like, no one wants to work for free, like, like, and I understand that. But I found a compromise, which was to work for charity, especially in Hollywood, because one thing I figured out pretty quick was the people running the charity events were Hollywood people and Hollywood people who are actually doing stuff like real shows. That's a big piece of advice for me is like work for people who are doing things like real things. So if there was an event for a children's hospital, let's say like you would get a chance to do work for three or four people who are actually in the know would be grateful when you were done and more prone to recommend you to something after that led to a lot of career improvement for me. And it was good for the soul after you completed the work. It was stuff that people actually wanted to do. The people you're working for is stuff that they actually wanted to do. And most people, especially, we were just so grateful that you helped. It just made you feel good about what you're doing. Do you still feel that it's necessary for people to move to Hollywood to get those opportunities? Yes, but almost no. We're close. We're so close. And I do, I do wonder in the future too, because like I could see myself getting to the point where I don't need to live here anymore. Cause it's about knowing enough people that are still going to call you anyway. But I wonder about that breaking in process, how that would work when you don't live here. I don't know. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's not. I will say once ingest, so recording to whatever media your cameras are recording to, once that's on the cloud, then it doesn't matter anymore because mostly it's an issue of getting people media. And that's the reason why you have to be in Hollywood. But once that goes away and we're close, the tools are already starting. So that makes it probably three to five years away. But honestly, I don't know. I'm just kind of bullshitting you. <laughs> Sorry. And that was the end of episode 57. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywide.com forward slash 57 alongside a link to subscribe to the weekly newsletter for this podcast. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting an extraordinary celebrity makeup artist who has worked with the likes of Michael Bublé, Gigi and Bella Hadid, editorials like Harper's Bazaar and GQ, and also been a judge on Miss Universe Australia and Australia's Next Top Model. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday. <laughs>